Good morning again to you all. I want to consider this passage that uh, has been read to you, in particular the verses 3 to, to 8. As we look around us politically, there is a lot of confusion and questions and a looking for an answer, a solution to the problems that confront us in our world today. Uh, we, we could even say there are many people looking for a savior to rescue them, to save them from this uh, predicament that we find ourselves in. And there are many people finding different saviors to trust in. But the reality is there is not one of them that will be able to undo the mess that we have brought on ourselves. And many, sadly, will welcome with open arms a savior that will not be able to save or deliver, though they promise much. And Paul here, writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, as a pastor in a church to lead them and to encourage them and to remind them, as you have heard here in this reading, over and over of these things. He, he tells them, this is a faithful saying, and these things I would, you would affirm constantly, repeatedly, that they have been uh, trusting in God, would be careful to do these good deeds. Really, that's the end of what we will consider this morning, our calling to live in the midst of this confusing age, doing good works that people may glorify our Father in heaven. But all of that is preceded by this teaching of the Apostle Paul of who we are, who we are to be in this present age. And we find that particularly in verses 3 to 8. And I want to consider that with you under this theme, he saved us. You'll perhaps notice when you read verse 5 at its very beginning, it's the central part of this whole passage when he says, but after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, he saved us. God saved us. And first, I want to look at this passage in light of who he saved. And then, who's the Savior? And then look at also this salvation that he has given to us, to, to the saved. Really, what, what seems to be the case here, as with many of Paul's writings, when Paul, when Paul in his heart is contemplating who he was and who Christ is and the salvation and grace of God, his heart just overflows. He, he, he just can't seem to stop writing about these things. And, and that seems to be the case here too. Three through eight could easily, three through seven, could be easily composed into a song. We have sung several songs this morning that reflect in many ways, the truths contained in this passage as well. These are but two sentences, really, in three through seven. The salvation here that Paul mentions is a reminder to us that salvation is from God alone. Because Paul is going to remind us who the saved are, who they were outside of Christ in this present world. He, he will show us who the Savior is, and he, he wants to show us how those who have been saved are now therefore called to live. And the thing that makes Christ so precious to those who are saved is to see it again and again in this contrast of who we once were. You know, a diamond, if you go to a jewelry store, is often taken out of the case and the lights are all shining and you put it on a dark black backdrop. And the brilliance of the diamonds shine more brightly. And this is the contrast here that the Apostle Paul is going to set before us. The contrast of darkness and light. The contrast is, if you will, far as east to west. And Paul is now pointing out to Titus here this reality to him and the church to whom he has ministered. And Paul is going to say, for we ourselves, verse 3, were also. And then he's going to describe who we once were. 
And here is a good indicator of whether or not you and I can place ourselves in the first point of the saved. We need to ask ourselves, really, as we begin into this passage, and we will see the brilliance of the Savior, do we understand what we have been saved from? Do we understand truly and confess who we are in ourselves? Do I know something? Here is the question you and I need to ask ourselves of what Paul, and he includes himself, for we ourselves were also, Do I confess this, which Paul says in this passage, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit about myself? And in essence, what Paul is saying here is this. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that is good in you or me. That's what he's saying. And there are many Christians who would give a hearty amen They know this is the teaching of the scriptures. And yet they really, in practice, find this hard to accept, hard to confess. If I would meet each of you after this service and I would say at the the door as I greet you, you once were a fool. You, you once were serving pleasures. You, you once lived in malice and envy and you hated others. You were living for yourself in your own selfish pleasures. Some might be offended. There may be additional problem in that some of you may still be living this way. If we are outside of Christ, even though we might confess to belong to him, if we're living in this description of the Apostle Paul, we cannot claim to be one of those who are saved. You need to be saved. You need to come to Christ in repentance and faith. And others there are, however, that... When, when we look at ourselves and we know the teaching of Scripture and we experience our own fallenness and sinfulness day by day, we become discouraged because our eyes are only on ourselves. But dearly beloved, Paul doesn't want us to simply look at ourselves. He wants us, as we look at this description of who we are or were, to put that in contrast with who we will see Christ is. That's where he wants to lead us this morning. And so I ask this question in light of what we've said so far. Do you, in answer to this question, wish sin were dead in you? Are you seeking, by the grace of God, to put sin to death in you by the grace of God? Oh, it's a hard battle. It's a lifelong battle of the Christian. But does your heart, in light of this battle, flee to Christ for pardon and forgiveness, not only, but for power, which is available in him, to put sin to death? Has something changed in your life at some point in time where before you understand what Paul is saying, we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating others. Yet by the grace of God, we can say, I am no longer what I once was. And my eye is fixed and seeks to see more of Christ. Well, this is the description then that Paul is giving us of the saved. Paul is saying there has come a transformation, a change in our life from spiritual ignorance and indifference to a time of seeking after Christ, seeking to walk in obedience to him. We begin to understand that without Christ, there's no salvation. It's a deliverance, we could say, from being deceived, as Paul says here, to a time of understanding, believing what God in his word says not only about us, but about his son, the Savior. And there we find our only hope. 
Paul is saying, in essence, this is a deliverance from a time we were enslaved to various lusts after our own selfish pleasures, to a time of freedom and liberty as the children of God. Do you know this translation, this renewal, this new birth from to? From what Paul is saying here in verse 3, to being those who have experienced the grace of God. For you yourselves, Paul says, we too, I too, are sometimes in the past foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving these lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Do you say that's true? That was true of you. This is a picture of every unbeliever. And whether or not we want to agree with Paul's assessment here or not is not really the question. We could look at the Apostle Paul and say, when when were you this? You were a Pharisee on the outward appearance of things. You would have looked impeccable. You would have looked like a man who was desiring to follow God. And yet when Paul writes this, he includes himself, doesn't he? For we ourselves were immersed in these pleasures. You know, man by nature, people by nature are trying to make the most of their life, experience the best things in life that they can. They, they want to grow. They want to be pleasing to others around them. And so we try to make our lives more pleasurable. And in the process of seeking to promote ourselves, often what happens is we become enslaved to those very things that we are seeking after. Paul is saying the same thing in Ephesians 4. He says, don't walk as the other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Paul does this often, if you read his letters, reminds us who we were. Is this who you were? Do you recognize yourself in this picture? And if you agree heartily with what Paul is saying, what you also agree with is this. You and I couldn't save and rescue ourselves. Could you imagine, children, if you were in the middle of the ocean, you've fallen off a boat and you knew how to swim a little bit, but now you've been there for hours and the boat is carried on. Now you're by yourself in the middle of the ocean. Can you reach down by yourself and pull yourself out of the water and put yourself on land? It's impossible. And that's what Paul is painting here for us, this picture. Maybe you're at that place this morning where you have stumbled along, you have come to some understanding of what Paul is saying here, and you, you recognize you are not able to save yourself. You're in an impossible situation. But all of this, Paul says, was before verse 4. The kindness and love of God our Savior appears to man. And he wants to highlight for us this reality to remember it again and again. It is the triune God who has saved you. You haven't saved yourself. I haven't saved myself. And if God hadn't saved you, you would not be saved. That's a solid, safe truth to confess and to glean from this passage of the Apostle Paul. Paul is saying, in essence, don't think you are so far different from the culture in which you are living. 
It's easy for us as Christians to look out at this culture living in such confusion and consider ourselves to be different. The reality, as Paul is saying here, is we were once like them. And in light of that, it ought to give us encouragement. If he has changed me, he has changed you, he can change those who we interact with in this culture and this world as well. Paul is presenting his case here before them for the purpose, not only to greater appreciate the salvation of the Lord, but to have compassion and mercy on those around us who are struggling in the throes of this very bondage that leads to death. You, if you are saved, were once a part of this description in reality. And those among your family, perhaps, or those among your acquaintance or at work, may still actually be in this category of those who are foolish, disobedient, serving all kinds of lusts and pleasures, hating each other. But God, the kindness and love of God, that's where Paul comes to in his transition here of this passage. And he begins to unfold what made this difference that you, if you are saved, are no longer living this kind of life. It was not because we're so different from the world. It's not because of anything in us. But he is telling us it is the kindness and love of God that appeared that made the difference. He saved us according to his mercy. And Paul is here giving us the character. You, if you were in uh, the lesson this morning, you saw something of the character of God described. And the triune God set forth. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's operating under the same understanding of who this one true God is. It is a God filled with love and kindness and mercy. By his mercy, he rescued us. He saved us. Salvation, dear friends, is rooted in the very being, in the very character, in the very heart of God. He is Savior. And the amazing thing is, not only does he save us and rescue us, he doesn't deal with us justly according to what we have deserved. His mercy is on display When he rescues us who deserve hell and death on account of our sin and grants us grace and kindness and love in Jesus Christ. In the gospel, we see God's mercy in the Savior. That's our second thought. We we see the saved given their description of what they were. They are saved from this black contrast of this glorious diamond, the Savior. This is what he will go on to say again. Not only is it God our Savior, but in verse 6 he clarifies and he perhaps focuses more clearly on Christ when which he shed on us abundantly this mercy of regeneration through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You've been considering the Trinity today. Each of the blessed persons of the Trinity here are coming into different focus as we consider what the Savior, what he has done and who he is. God, our Savior, in verse 4, points us clearly to God the Father. Verse 6 is clearly shedding this light upon the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 5 at the end is telling us we have been renewed through the Holy Spirit. His power, his application of salvation to our hearts. And so salvation, friends, is a work of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we need to have this right understanding of the Trinity that each of these divine persons is as willing and willing as the other to rescue and save 
sinners. They are all involved in their own particular way in rescuing us. But for each of them, the loving kindness, the grace, and the mercy of God comes into view as we consider their work in rescuing us. Paul saying, God did this. The Father gave his only Son. The Son came to suffer and die. And the Holy Spirit, with his washing of regeneration and his renewing of our life, opens our eyes to see this reality for what it truly is. Our sin, verse 3, and the Savior, verse 4, 5, 6. And Paul is actually telling us here the reason why God saves us. It, it is indeed a mystery. If, if you see yourself in verse 3, it never ceases to amaze you. Why? Why? Why did God choose me? Why did he rescue me? We'll never have a complete answer to that question, I believe. Other than because he chose to. He loved us with an eternal love. He wants to display his kindness and mercy toward us. That's, in some way, a stammering of why God saved us. And in the process, we, we see that it excludes everything of our own righteousness, of our own salvation within ourselves. It's according, Paul says, to his mercy and his grace that he saved us. There are so many, even Christians, who have this distant, disconnected view of God. Even not only in our own lives, but certainly as we look at the troubles in this present world. Many people ask the question, if this is who God is, and you're claiming Paul is saying he is love, kindness, grace, Mercy. Why? Why is there suffering in this world? Why is there murders? And why are there wars? And why is there all this evil in this present world? And Paul and we can say, away with such talk. All we need to consider is what God has done in response to the evil that he never brought about in the first place. It's we through our sin. And if we begin to see what God has done in response to the evil of sin, we fall on our face in worship and adoration. What more could God have done to have rescued this sinful world? Consider what he did. He gave his only son, who is in the heart of the Father, from all eternity in communion together through the Holy Spirit. He gave his son to come. This love of God appeared. That's what Paul is saying here in other places. It appeared in our very nature. It appeared so that those who were living at that time could see and hear and record for us what they have witnessed so that we may hear and see as they did. Who can rightly grasp and understand that God gave his only son to come into this evil world to live and die? He who was innocent, he who was righteous, he who did not deserve to die, was taken by the hands of wicked men and hung upon the tree. a passion season in some religious circles and we are reminded during this time as we lead up to Good Friday and Easter that our Lord suffered throughout our whole Lord's life 
from the moment of his conception till his last breath, he suffered. He knows our suffering. He knows your pressing temptation and need. And he is able to meet and exceed what your suffering and your need is. And I ask the question again, in light of all the evil we see around us, or even experience within us and its suffering consequence, what more could God have done to address this evil than he's done? He sent his own son. The saved people we have been considering at the first point needed a savior and God himself provides one. This is the message of the gospel that Paul is talking about here to Titus to remind the people to always hold before their face. He was the one who came in our likeness, just in our very natures, who is God's son and who is the son of man. And he came down from glory His name is Jesus, after all. He came to save his people from their sins. He was born in the fullness of time, born of a woman and under the law. And as he rises even on his baptism in Jordan, the acclamation of heaven in God's own voice is what? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And what do we hear from the voice of the Son? The word of God. Whatsoever he said, the Father wants me to say, I have told you. When you look at Christ and you read of him in the Gospels, who do you see? You see the Father. You see the character of God. You see love and kindness at every page. You see, those who are suffering, the woman coming out of the city, carrying her only son, who is a widow. And Jesus meets her in compassion. He meets our every need. This is the one who went about doing good. He restores, he comforts, he saves. But he's faithful. He comes and he rebukes sin where rebuke is needed. He goes to the Pharisees who are righteous in themselves and he says, except you repent, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He is the faithful Savior. God gave it all when he surrendered his son to be crucified and die. Why? Did he die? That justice, the character of God, might be completed in the sense of upheld. There at the cross, Jesus is not dying for his own sin, but there, even there at the cross, while God the Father is silent, love and kindness and mercy and grace are displayed. How? Everyone who is pictured in verse 3 who comes to the cross and gazes upon Christ and trusts in him. See the price of sin that they have deserved has been paid. Here is at the cross the grandest display we could say of this love and kindness of God that could ever be set forth. That anyone who looks upon Christ and him crucified and trusts in him alone as Savior will be rescued from their sin and death. This is the wonder that Paul is telling us here, the wonder of the salvation of God, that he provided the payment. He opens the eyes of the blind to see this reality. He he opens our hearts that are by nature bound to sin, and he gives us feet so that we might flee to the Savior. He grants us hearing where before we were deaf. And all of this you could see in this description here that he gives 
not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. If we are those in the first point, the saved, the only reason we rejoice and we can glory today in our our very being and lift up our voice in worship is because of God, our Savior. And it's interesting that nowhere in this particular passage does Paul talk about repentance and faith. Although we know without repentance and faith, no man shall see God. But Paul here is wanting us to highlight. He's wanting us to grasp more fully and extol more completely the mercy, the grace, the loving kindness of God, the Savior. And that's because he is focusing on the fact that salvation is of God and it's found in his son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't ignore faith. If you look at verse 8, that they which have believed in God, he's calling us to mind that indeed it requires repentance and faith, but it's not part of our salvation. This even is the gift of God itself. And so I ask you this morning, have your eyes been opened, not only in our first thought to see who you were, but do you see also who the Savior is? So that your heart desires to know him more and better and to worship him in all his glory. Do you believe that the love and kindness and mercy and grace of God has come to you and you have received it unto salvation? He's not only a savior. He's not only the only savior, but he is our Savior. Verse 6, which he shed, bestowed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's a personal reality. And if you lay claim to this truth, he is my Savior. He has rescued me. Our hearts ought to be stirred in light of this glorious reality so that we would adore him. We would, we would want to serve him with the whole of our hearts and the whole of our being. If we have been washed, as we see here in verse 5, by the Holy Spirit in being made alive in regeneration and renewed by the Holy Spirit, if we have come to repent of these sins and laid hold upon Christ as our only hope and expectation, he's our Savior. We are saved. We are rescued. And Paul goes on here in this passage to lay out three things that we have been saved unto. These three things of our salvation is first, he says, we are saved. He saved us. Second is he's justified us. And third, he has made us heirs of salvation. And each of these three are connected. Not only linguistically, but logically to the Savior in verse 6. Which are shed abundantly. And all of these things that Paul mentions here of salvation that comes to us, that we receive from Christ, come to us only for the sake of Jesus Christ. His work, his righteousness, And without it, no one could be saved. We would still be in verse 3. And the first thing I want to note with you is that this has appeared. This salvation has appeared, Paul says, to mankind. The love and kindness of God has appeared to you, to your families to this world in one sense or another. 
And now we who are recipients of this salvation are called also by our lives and by our words and testimonies to have this glorious truth appear to others as well. Wasn't it perhaps through someone who ministered to you? Who who brought the gospel of how it transformed them to you? And by hearing this word of the gospel that was presented as Paul does here to Titus, And to the church there that he is ministering to? Didn't it continue to go forth through the ages so that it comes to us even to this very hour? Calling us who have tasted of this salvation to go out into this world in this coming week to speak of him and this salvation as well? Oh, the fact that Christ has come, he's been born, he suffered and died and rose again. All these are evidences of this love and kindness and mercy of God that saved us. Romans 5.8 reminds us, God commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.9, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sending his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And the call now of Paul and the Holy Spirit in this passage is having been saved, rescued. You are now, you and I are, to live as those who have been called out. Whose hearts have tasted the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting here, if you look at verse 4, this word love of God that Paul mentions, it's, it's not the kind of uh, word that we would expect in the Greek language for Paul to use, the, the, the great agape love, but rather this word he uses here, the love of God that appeared toward us as Savior, is one that is connected to pity, to compassion, tenderness, a philanthropic eagerness to deliver someone who is in pain and distress, a strong, uh, effective emotion that's called into action. And really the picture here of this love that Paul is setting before us that saved us is like the heart of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Could you imagine what's going on in the heart of this father through that time when his son said, bye, dad, and he left and walked away, never intending to return. But the Holy Spirit working in his heart, bringing him to himself, reminding him of the father's house, he comes back. And this love that is in the heart of the father includes all the kinds of love the New Testament expressed. But isn't it this kind of love as well? As he sees his son coming, smelling like the pigs, he runs to meet him. He pities him. He has compassion on him. He throws his arm around him and kisses him. The kindness and love of God, our Savior, saved us. According to his mercy, we have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, and he continues to pour on us his graces. We who are in a miserable condition, he grants us mercy. We've been thoroughly washed. Not what we have done, verse 5, but he saved us in his mercy with the washing and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That blessed person of the Trinity who who makes us alive, who shows Christ to us, who convinces us of sin, of righteousness and judgment, and now dwells within us, gives us the grace to trust the Savior. He saves us. And not only initially saves us, but continues in his work of transformation within us. 
Paul says the second thing here that this salvation does is it justifies us. We are justified by his grace. If mercy is God's pity to us in our miserable condition, we could say grace is God's pardon of us in our guilty condition. He came and found us there perishing and sinking beneath the waves of our sin. And he rescues us, places our feet on solid ground. We were guilty. We deserved to be left without being rescued. But he saved us and he justifies us. What does that mean? I think we know. But to remind us the simplicity of what this is saying is that those who are the saved are also justified. Those who are justified stand before God as if they were as perfect as Christ is. Let that settle in your hearts, in your minds, your souls. That God sees in his justified children no sin. Oh, we still sin. We still stumble. We need daily forgiveness. We need renewal and transformation. Yes. But in Christ, God sees us as if there was no sin. He saved us. He, the Savior, God, justified us. How? Well, we return to the cross. He can only justify us on the basis of justice. So his son, taking the place that we deserved, death, he who did not deserve to die, died so that we who deserve to die can live. This is the substitutionary truth of the gospel and what Paul is telling us here about the Savior. We are guilty. We have sinned. But in grace, marvelous grace, amazing grace, he sends his son to take the place of sinners. Grace tells us we are forgiven. We've been reconciled to God through the Savior. We are adopted as his children. We are made alive. We are justified in Christ. Paul says in Romans 3, 24 to 26, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be the propitiation, the satisfaction through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and justifier of him who believes in Jesus. If we have believed in Jesus, you are justified by Jesus. We are not what we once were, but we are yet not what we once shall be. We are objectively justified and by the eye of God seen as holy and righteous as the one in whom we stand. But there's coming a day in which that objective truth shall be subjectively experienced in reality when we shall sin no more. And Paul is pointing to this reality in his third point here of this salvation because there's a purpose, an end to which we have been renewed, for which we have been saved and justified, that we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the hope that fills the church, that fills the hearts of the children of God. This was the hope that was set before the Old Testament saints. 
Abraham, the father of the faithful, did not have his eyes set on some kind of earthly Canaan or earthly city. His eye was set by faith on the heavenly Canaan, the heavenly Jerusalem, if you will. And now Christ having come, how much more with the fuller revelation of the will and salvation of God are the church to have their eyes constantly fixed on Christ, the Savior, on God, the Savior, and the salvation that is coming, that we shall at his appearing see him as he is we shall be like him. Are our eyes as we grovel in the muck and the confusion and the difficulties and the temptations of daily life directed where Paul wants Timothy and his church to be directed? We're saved. We once were. Through the Savior, His love and mercy and kindness and grace appeared in Jesus Christ to save us and justify us and to remind us we are heirs of eternal life. And that word heir hides away, if you will, this glorious truth that when we are in Jesus Christ by saving faith, we are his children, the children of God. Christ is our elder brother. And Christ and Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, wants us to know. This is as sure a reality as you're being saved, as you're being justified, is that one day, without sin, our mouths shall sing forth and our lives shall demonstrate that we serve, honor, worship the King, the Savior, And his beauty. Why do you think Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, before he has gone the way of suffering, he is saying to them and to us, Fear not, little flock. It is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This has been God's purpose from the beginning, pre Fall, pre-time, pre-creation in the very heart of God is to reveal himself and to make known to others to enjoy his love, his kindness, his grace, his mercy, particularly in his son, Jesus Christ. Going back to the very beginning of this letter to Titus, he says, This is Paul, the servant, apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. We are an heir, Paul says. We are the adopted sons who have the down payment of the Holy Spirit within our hearts, testifying that we are the sons of God, the daughters of God. We are heirs of all things in Jesus Christ. And yet we find ourselves groveling over that next dollar and the next paycheck. When everything that is his is also ours. But the fact that we are heirs reminds us again we don't deserve this. A son who is born into a family of a rich man hasn't earned it, he receives it graciously. We receive as heir of all things all that we will receive graciously through Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul is wanting to stir up the heart of the people of God. And you will have noticed several times in the verses that were read this morning, how that he is reminding those in Timothy and us, in light of these glorious truths I want you to speak about often and frequently, do good deeds. In light of this truth, be ready to every good deed in verse 1. And at the end in verse 8, this is the faithful saying, and these things I would you affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God would be careful to maintain these good deeds. These are things that are profitable and good unto men. And so if you have been saved and justified and you are an heir to eternal life, how can we not, in response to this glorious truth, rise up and live for him? Live not only in demonstration of kindness, love, and grace with our actions, but our words and our whole life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Silver, gold, love, will, my all. In response to this glorious truth, He is Savior. Let's pray. Our merciful and gracious God, you are Savior. You alone have rescued us. And we pray that our heart's response may be that of worship and adoration, wonder, why, why me? That we may seek in response to be assured of this truth that we have considered this morning More and more, yes, Lord, we we do confess. We stumble, we fail, we sin. But help us to return again to our Savior, who is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we would ask or think. And help us to live out of him and his power and his strength and his life. So that we with anticipation, in spite of all the suffering and all the confusion, may lift up our heads and our eyes, for our redemption is drawing near. Hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.